This is available as a podcast and a webinar. Bye! Hi, good afternoon. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. This is our 2023 limited jurisdiction updates. Uh, last year, as you know, we did three uh, because uh, we had legislation, then we had rules, and uh, then we had a couple propositions, and someone uh, needs to be muted. Uh, and so we ended up having to do three. Uh, this year, there wasn't much legislation. Uh, we may have a uh, at least one proposition that we'll need to talk about, but we don't know if we'll need to talk about that until uh, after the election. Uh, so hopefully uh, you, <laughs> hopefully uh, um, this this will be the only one. Uh, I'm Charles Odonetto. I'm the Judicial Education Officer for Maricopa County Justice Courts. With me is the presiding justice of the peace for the Maricopa County Justice Courts, uh, Anna Huberman. And we do have our bios in the materials. Our uh, quick outline is we'll talk about legislation, rules, cases, best practices, and then et cetera. And we'll start with legislation. And uh, in one word, the session can be summed up in one word, and that's veto. Not, not that veto, this veto. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, and Judge Huberman, you can take over. Hi, good afternoon. Um, Want to move to the next slide? Yep. So this year there weren't really that many traffic updates. We just have... Um, the House Bill 2288 that adds the uh, that the large vehicles have the right of way in roundabouts. Um, we did not get a fine amount for this, um, but our operations team is programming it uh, to match other fines in in the same title. Uh, so I think the fine is going to be like $180. And then we did have an issue with um, SB 1206. Um, I don't know if everyone remembers that last year um, there had been a change and that um, traffic citations that were, uh, when they were equipment violations of commercial vehicles, they would be charged as civil traffic violation if there was not an out-of-service violation. But if there was an out-of-service violation, uh, whether it be on the driver or on the vehicle, then it would be a criminal violation because that vehicle is not supposed to be on the road. So supposedly this 1206 was Judge, you're, you're, we, we no longer hear you. We still don't hear you. All right, while we're waiting for Judge Huberman to reconnect, uh, just to back up on the roundabout 
statute. There was actually an article in the Republic uh, a couple of days ago that said, what in the world were they thinking? Because uh, that, that may make the roundabouts a lot more dangerous. All right, Judge, you want to try again? You, you are muted. I, I agree that I think that the roundabouts are going to be more dangerous. Um, but fortunately, there's not that many roundabouts in, in our areas. But um, and I apologize for the sound. CTS has come a ton of times to fix this, and they, I guess they can never find what the issue is. Well, anyway, so the, 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 we had originally decided that from now on, all of the equipment violations would always be civil. That was our interpretation of SB 1206. But SB 1206 was included in uh, the, the statute where they, they, they amended it, talks about felonies and misdemeanors. And so the AOC does not believe that they can be civil traffic violations for that reason. They have recommended that we continue coding it the same way as we did last year. If there's an out of uh, orders violation, uh, that it would be a criminal. And if there's not an out of or out of service violation, it would be civil. So right now, I think that that's what we're going to stick to. They are expecting that the legislature will work on that again um, and get it fixed permanently this year. But we all know how that could go. Uh, next. Yeah, there's a lag. There we go. Oh, sorry. So you might remember that last year, the lifetime injunctions, uh, that that was amended to allow for lifetime injunctions in all cases. Um, that's for the, that the victim would have against the defendant in all cases that are dangerous um, in nature that are serious or aggravated crimes against children and then sexual offenses. And that, um, the statute at that time said that they were for all cases that had been filed, that they didn't, cases that had been filed before the effective date of the statute, which was September of 22, the victims could uh, file uh, a motion to request the lifetime injunction. Uh, then this year, this was just amended uh, to clarify that the set aside and sealing of records is not affect that lifetime injunctions and that the courts may not charge for filing. Uh, these lifetime injunctions should really only be on felony cases, so we shouldn't be seeing them. Uh, but if you just happen to hear about it, then you know what we're talking about. And then how many times has this statute been changed? Um, now they've changed to clarify that the certificates of second chance are unlimited for misdemeanors. Um, and that the judge shall issue the certificate of second chance if it, they're eligible. And, um, but they can only get one certificate of second chance if it's for a felony. And then Charles prepared this handy grid for everyone to be able to reference what the statutes are for the set aside, for the certificate of second chance, for the expungements, and for sealing. I think expungements. We've barely seen any. Most of them should be going to Superior Court anyways. Um, and then, but we we have been seeing some sealing of records. 
So the sealing of records um, establishes that that if you can get one record sealed within the time frame that the law allows, so that's three years after completion, after they've completed all the terms of the judgment for a class one misdemeanor and for two years for class two or three misdemeanors. Um, and then in that case, they would be eligible for sealing. If the person, if it's a second offense, if they have a prior offense that is a Title 28, that does not affect the, the, the request for a sealing of records unless it is a, uh, a DUI. So if it is the, the, the prior offense is a DUI, then or any other type of offense that's not a Title 28, then they have to wait uh, for the, uh, the, the, the time for the second conviction to pass before you can seal the first conviction. Right, I don't know if that's clear. I think we have some examples here. So if someone gets a first conviction, uh, let's say that it's for uh, a shoplift and they have to wait three years to get it sealed. If they get a second conviction for a DUI, then they have to wait another three years for that one. They have to wait the three years from the second conviction before they can even seal the first one, even though the first one maybe happened before. Um, so that's the way that you need to interpret that. And if it is a non-DUI, then the they can wait the two years for the second conviction. Like in this case, the example is for sealing, and then they don't have to add that second conviction as a delay to the first one. Please stop me if anyone doesn't understand that. Um, and then in this case, uh, they can't apply in, in, in this conviction, for example, they have a, a one for shoplifting and a second one for shoplifting, um, but they have to wait until the second conviction time has passed before they can seal the first one because it is, uh, it's, it's a, not a Title 28. So, and, and that's ahead. why we've done the grid. This this yeah. is pretty complicated. Um, this, yeah, Mike, Milsky? Yes, a quick question. How do we know? How do we know if there's a second conviction that, uh, that there's still time? Is that something the state has to tell? Yes, uh, the state, you, the, every, the, 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 every record, Every request for sealing of records needs to go to the state and the state will send in the information that they have. The courts as well should be doing a records check uh, and that should come up in the records check that the courts are doing. We, we also ask the applicant. Well, then the applicant needs to let you know in the application, sure. Thank you. Uh, as to the mobile home parks, this is the, you know, the mobile home parks have been in the news. Um, everybody's worried about, you know, folks losing housing and, and the situation with the mobile parks. 
this just allows that there's a material breach um, that they get an additional time if they're using a licensed contractor to complete the repairs. So instead of the 14 days, they now have 60 days to complete. Judge Huberman? Yes. Does that also go the other way? If the tenant serves the 14 day, the notice to the landlord, do the, does the landlord also get 60 days to repair? No, I don't think, I think this just has to do with the tenants being able to keep their homes and not be kicked out because of repairs that they don't have money and, and, and time to get done. Um, this one, SB 1061, just adds the public officials and election officers to the address confidentiality programs. Um, and there's the definition of public official and election officer. So the juvenile, I thought we had resolved this, but it looks like we're still working on it. This new statute does not allow surcharges or fees on juvenile cases. Fortunately for us in the justice courts, we no longer hear juvenile cases and we should not, this should not be an issue for us um, because going forward, all of these cases are now going to the juvenile court. And so we should not have any of these problems, but we have a bunch of old cases that we have left over uh, that we, we are going back to look at to make sure that we remove all these fees. Um, so they, um, we have to, we, we, we're gonna automate this. It's probably not anything that's gonna affect any of you. We need to get these cases pulled from FAIR. We need to remove the $20 time payment fee from all of them um, and make sure that there's not other fees that aren't allowed through this. Again, this is just something for general knowledge for you to have, but, uh, or if you get some some person that comes back on some old warrant on a case where they when they were juveniles, uh, but that we should not be having to deal with this. The county is going to have to deal with uh, the the collection part, but we the the county doesn't seem to think that this is going to affect us too much uh, financially, at least on the old cases, um, and it's something that you shouldn't be having to deal with. Well, there is there is a big change for civil traffic because uh, the statute will now require that if you're doing civil traffic, you must allow the juvenile to do community restitution. Um, however, keep in mind that the Title 28 uh, says that the defendant must agree and the court uh, must agree to community restitution and the court must identify the location for that community restitution. So our best practice would be that you identify that location as a nonprofit in Arizona. So just keep in mind for all juveniles, there's no time payment fee and you right. must allow them to do uh, to do community restitution for civil traffic. And please, please, please do never suggest a place where they should do the community restitution. Don't what? give them a specific agency. Don't tell them, you know, I like St. Mary's Food Bank. You should ask them, you know, don't do don't do that. Just tell them that it needs to be a nonprofit. Let them choose it. All right, and uh, there actually were a lot of rules changes. A lot of them were to the rules of evidence that we won't necessarily see, but they are here uh, for completeness. 
And of course, as always, uh, I, I, we've got the link for you to look at most of the stuff we talk about here today, that you should always be reading this stuff and take a look at your own uh, and do your own interpretation. Uh, one that came from, um, from that went into effect on July 1st, which is why if you're using a rule book, you better have that supplement or else it's way out of date because uh, that supplement's about 70 pages. And uh, so what they did was they interspersed victims' rights into many of the criminal rules as Section V. That's to make sure that we do comply with victims' rights. Uh, and again, that's that's why I'll always suggest that you uh, look for the rules online. Criminal Rule 6.1B1C is another one that is, is hanging around, and this is still causing a great deal of confusion. And so there is a pending rule package for that one. And so rule 6.1 was amended effective January 1st to add a provision that a defendant is entitled to a public defender if the defendant is held on bond at the initial appearance. And this, this is paragraph C, not paragraph B. Paragraph B was limited for the limited purpose of determining re release conditions. Paragraph C just says uh, they're entitled to an attorney. As always, we should be obtaining a financial form unless you're appointing in the interest of justice. And as always, the defendant can waive an appointed attorney. Uh, now, you're going to say, well, what if we can't get the form? Just make sure you get that financial form before the end of the case. Uh, if we're audited, you don't want to be dinged for not having that. So this is the statute. Uh, this is the rule as it reads right now. And you'll see. So they added or if the defendant is held on bond at the initial appearance. And at the initial appearance is, is important. Uh, that is telling you when it is. So you don't need an attorney at the initial appearance. You do need the attorney at the next court date. And this is the uh, proposal that is currently pending before the Supreme Court. So it takes out B because B actually became uh, it served no purpose because, uh, like I said, you, you don't need an attorney at the initial appearance. And if you're holding a bond, bond, then you do need to appoint them going forward. So there was no purpose for the limited purpose language. And so what does the other thing, uh, the other proposed change to this rule uh, encapsulate is that it does clarify that the appointment can terminate upon the defendant's release from incarceration um, unless otherwise required by law or ordered by the court. So if it's a DUI charge uh, or, or horse tripping, another charge with mandatory jail time, uh, you can leave the appointment of the attorney. Uh, if they do post the bond or if they're later released on their own recognizance, you can terminate the, the uh, employment of the attorney uh, or you can leave it in the interest of justice if you feel that the person should continue to be represented. All right, eviction bonds and this rule change uh, is to the Superior, Superior Court Rules of Appellate Procedure Civil. And this is attempting to clarify, I, I don't, I thought it was clear before, but not everyone might agree, but it more closely parrots the language from ARS 12 1179D. 
And what that tries to clarify is that there's basically two different bonds for, in, for a residential eviction case. And one bond is for collection of the judgment, and the other bond is to stay the writ of uh, to stay the writ so that the person can stay in the premises. And so what this does clarify is if the person wants to stay in the premises, that bond is uh, a prorated amount for the rest of the month, uh, even though that's already included in the judgment bond. So yes, that it's basically going to, uh, it may require a double payment. Note that this is the only bond to stay in the premises. So even if rent was not an issue, if they want to stay on the premises, they do have to post a rent bond. Uh, so if they're being evicted for an immediate and they've already paid rent for the month, guess what? They're going to have to pay rent again for the rest of the month. Uh, that's just the way the statute is written and the rule uh, does mirror that. There were a number of changes that went into effect and, th and this rule package has been around since 2022 and so that was finally put into place. That does allow for electronic si signatures. Michael? Um, just a quick question on the, the previous um, slide. Uh, what about those rare cases, and I've seen them from time to time, where somebody seeking to evict a, um, for lack of a better phrase, somebody who isn't paying rent, um, then would uh, the rent bond uh, still be zero? Uh, if if it's a squatter, you can they can ask for the fair market value, and then you'll do a, a hearing to determine the fair market value of what the rent would be. All right, so back to electronic signatures, there are going to be a number of rule changes or additional rules uh, added to the uh, to the Justice Court Rules of Civil Procedure, to the Rules of Criminal Procedure, uh, to the Rules of Civil Procedure for Superior Court that do talk about. Uh, allowing for electronic signatures. So this is just catching up to reality. A lot of, of what we're seeing is uh, because of the pandemic, a lot of things have had to keep up with, with uh, reality and with new technology. And so a person can sign a document uh, 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 through the court's authorized electronic filing service by doing a slash S slash and the clerk must accept for filing any document that purports to have a signature, uh, including those that are electronically signed. If the authenticity or sufficiency of an electronic signature is disputed, a judicial officer will make a determination under applicable substan substantive law. Uh, Judge Huberman, did you want to say anything else about electronic signatures? Uh no, just that, you know, just remember that they, you must accept them. That's the, the, I think that's the biggest takeaway that there's no longer an option to say, I wanted, you know, them to come in person and write the motion or whatever. All right. And we do uh, have a question going all the way back to that civil traffic community restitution. The statute as of October 30th does say that the court must make community restitution available to a juvenile defendant in civil traffic, so you are going to bring it up. You're not going to find a juvenile. You're going to ask them uh, if they if they want to do community restitution instead. If they say no, well, then you can impose a fine. 
but uh, you must make it available. All right, so the next rule is uh, a change to a criminal rule 2.6 on returns of warrants that will go into effect uh, next January 1. And that requires that the procedure for returns on search warrants be made to the court of the magistrate that issued the warrant. And then new rule 2.6 F talks about the maintenance of search warrant records. And it does allow for returns to be made by electronic means. This fixes a little glitch in the statute, which is really interesting because keep in mind that uh, law enforcement can go to any magistrate around the state to get a search warrant. And then the statute required that there be a return of the search warrant, but the statute doesn't say that you return it to the judge that issued it. Um, so that that just created some interesting situations. Uh, rule 38.2 will be amended effective January 1 to give uh, defendants additional opportunities to complete deferred prosecution. So can I just add something in there? Yes. The, the, a lot of courts had the, the practice of allowing like 90 days suspension of um, prosecution for these deferred prosecution cases. The county attorney has now started asking for 12 months. And so some courts believe that 12 months was too much and they've been crossing that out to the back to the 90 days. And uh, the county attorneys has asked us not to do that. Um, if you read carefully the language for the suspending prosecution, they still give them a set amount of time to get enrolled and start. So if they don't do that part of it and they don't enroll and don't start the classes, they can still come back and reinstate prosecution without having to wait the full 12 months. But that way it gives them time to complete the classes without the county attorneys having to constantly ask for more time of deferral if the person is taking longer to do the classes. And a lot of it because they are now doing deferred prosecution that are longer and for other types of case types. Um, so the suggestion is do not change the 12 month request when that's what they're asking for. All right, and uh, rule 902 was uh, amended to add tribal records to self-authenticating self documents. So if a document is self-authenticating, then an objection concerning foundation should be overruled. And rule 615 was amended to more closely mirror the um, federal rules of evidence. Uh, keep in mind when the Arizona rules of evidence were adopted way back when they, they were based on the federal rules. As time goes on, there are changes to the federal rules that may not get in, uh, incorporated into Arizona, and there are changes in Arizona that don't match the federal rules. So there was a group that tried to bring some of the Arizona rules back into more conformity with the federal rules. Uh, so this does clarify that an excluded witness cannot receive or review other testimony by any means. I don't know if there was actually an issue there. Uh, and then there is a comment to the 2024 amendment, which says the rule does not limit the court's discretion to allow an entity party to substitute its representative during trial under appropriate circumstances. 
if an entity seeks to have more than one witness representative protected from exclusion, exclusion, it is free to try and show that the witness is essential to presenting the party's claim or defense. And nothing in this amendment prohibits a court from exempting from exclusion multiple witnesses if they are found essential. Uh, so just uh, if if you are going to do a lot of trials where the the exclusion of witnesses is going to be an issue, uh, make sure you do review that. And again, Rule 702 of the Rules of Evidence was amended to, to bring it more into conformity with the federal rules. And that does amend uh, Rule 702 and 702D to qualify an expert if the proponent demonstrates to the court that it is more likely than not that the expert's opinion reflects reliable application of the principles and methods to the facts of the case. And then there's a comment to this one that says these changes are intended to clarify the standard of proof that the proponent of expert testimony must satisfy as well as to address the issue of expert overstatement. And it does permit cold experts to offer general educative testimony to help the trier of fact understand evidence or resolve fact issues. So a cold expert is someone who doesn't necessarily have any information about the case. And the rule of completeness, uh, rule 106 was amended again to, to come into, to, to match the federal rule. And that now says if a party introduces all or part of, of a statement, an adverse party may require the introduction at that time of any other part or any other statement that in fairness ought to be considered at the same time. The adverse party may do so over a hearsay objection. So if a party wants to bring in part of a recorded statement, the other side can say, wait a minute, uh, here's the rest of the story, here's the rest of the statement, and the original party cannot can make a hearsay objection, but that will have to be um, overruled uh, because you now have to allow the rest of the rest of the story in. And uh, Jerry Landau worked on this one, um, Rule 611 regarding hazardous evidence. This is really designed for Superior Court for fentanyl. Uh, I think it could conceivably apply to limited jurisdiction if, if we have that uh, eviction case where uh, the tenant wants to come in with a jar of bed bugs. Uh, so uh, we want to be careful about letting hazardous evidence into the courtroom. And uh, it's it's a longer rule, but so if, if you are going to have that situation, I do really recommend that you read it. Uh, but a party is going to have to make a showing why that hazardous evidence should come into the courtroom. And if you do permit that hazardous evidence, uh, then you're going to need to in, in ensure compliance with this. Security has assured us that they do not allow people to bring in bed bugs. Uh, be, be aware right. they used to be a thing back in the day it used to be a thing i know it's happened all right so uh this one uh is a change to criminal rule 11 on involuntary commitment this is more uh going to affect superior court but again it's included for completeness uh if, if i just want to jump in here that's you know there there's a rule 11 commission or committee working on on doing some really, really interesting stuff on Rule 11. Um, and because Rule 11 is a big issue in, in limited jurisdiction cases, uh, 
getting them to comply and what happens. Um, and so there's a lot of suggestions about finding other types of paths that aren't getting to the full rule 11. Um, so uh, we're, we're going to be working through that and just, you know, stay tuned. There may be some interesting changes. All right, and then there's a change to uh, criminal rule 32 and 33 on the record on appeal, which replaces other language with the entire trial court record. So I guess that makes it more clear. And this one uh, was continued, it was punted until August 2024. Uh, this is based on the case that uh, the, the Arizona District Court case that came down last November which said that defense attorneys don't have to go through the prosecutors to contact victims, they can contact them directly. And so a, a rule petition was submitted that would reflect that change in criminal rule 39. Uh, that The Burnovich case was not appealed, so that is still the current case law in Arizona, uh, but the Supreme Court did punt uh, that until August to determine whether or not they want to make that change in rule. All right, so any questions about statutes or rules before we talk about some cases? Uh, Judge Germain. Um, Charles, going back uh, two slides, I think it was. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so is that um, all the hearings? or just the hearing of like the trial? It is the entire trial court record, so it would include motions uh, and and the the proceedings of the trial. Okay. I, I, it, it's not going to include, and we can talk about this offline, it, it, but don't worry that it's not. Well, going I guess to I guess my question goes back to the the um, 90 minute limit for recorded transcript yeah that's not changed okay all right so cases and um as always uh, judge Blake. No, can, I, can i can i just really quickly before i forget for judge germain we have looked into this the, the the anything that has over the 90 minutes and that we send to actually be transcribed um is being done within a few weeks um, and it's not been as expensive as we were told. Um, so it, it hasn't been the issue that we were led to believe it was, if that was your concern. Right, so uh, when we talk about case law, every year Judge uh, James Blake from Scottsdale does do a case law review, and we have that on YouTube. And, and if you haven't watched it, go ahead and watch it. Uh, there is a case that came down a couple months ago on jury selection. And what this basically says is uh, the you, the trial judge, does have a great deal of discretion when you're determining uh, whether to uh, eliminate a juror uh, uh, for cause. Uh, so as long as you're not uh, abusing your discretion, that is great. Uh, I included a special action case by Judge Adam Driggs uh, that, is an unusual situation in it, and it's pretty extreme. Uh, and in this case, he did he did deny a public defender or a court-appointed attorney uh, because this defendant was a was 
basically terrorizing his attorneys. He was videotaping all of his interactions with them and posting them on YouTube. And the attorneys had to disengage from social media and actually turn their cell phones off because they were being harassed by uh, people who subscribed to the YouTube channel. And so as those attorneys withdrew, he, uh, the defendant requested uh, the appointment of another attorney and Judge Triggs said no. Uh, the defendant said he wasn't going to stop doing what he was doing. And so Judge Triggs said, well, we're, we're not going to let you terrorize another attorney. You, you, uh, we're going to deny that. So just be careful if you're going to do that, because it, it really should be a pretty extreme situation. And then a case that came out just last month uh, does uh, further give some clarification to what does apply uh, in Title 13 for a domestic violence relationship. And so if you do have an in-law and they're uh, like a sister-in-law and they're in the process of becoming, uh, they're in the process of divorcing, you do need to find out is the divorce final or not, because it does matter whether you are a sister-in-law or you are a former sister-in-law. So the statute in Title 13 does identify specific relationships where uh, it, the, the DV statutes do apply when it's a former relationship, such as former lovers, uh, but it does not include former in-laws. So a former in-law would have to go for an injunction against harassment. They could not go for an order of protection unless they still live together. And this one, the CARES eviction notice comes up every now and then when we do get uh, uh, cases from other states. And this one came from Colorado. And so one of the holdovers from the uh, from the eviction is the CARES Act. And there is a provision in the CARES Act where the landlord does have to give a 30 day notice for certain properties. And the statute, and it's a USC, uh, United States Code, does say a 30 day notice. It doesn't say you cannot file the eviction action before the 30 days is up. It says the tenant can't be evicted. Uh, there's there's a 30 day notice. There are some states, including this case from Colorado, which said which basically said the the uh, landlord cannot file until the 30 days are up. Uh, we we look at this case and decided that we're not going to change our opinion because we are going back to the experience that we had with the Department of Justice during the pandemic and what the Department of Justice did uh, after the CDC declaration came out and actually said the landlord shall take no action to evict the tenant. Uh, and so we, we interpreted that to mean no action, including you could not file an eviction. And then the Department of Justice clarified that by saying, no, 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 we, we just mean you you can file a lawsuit, before, uh, but you cannot actually have the tenant removed. So we have interpreted this to mean that it's still a five-day notice for non-payment of rent. Uh, so the land uh, the landlord can file uh, after the five-day notice if the rent isn't paid, uh, but you cannot issue a writ to be enforced before 30 days from that notice. 
And and so that that is our best practice committee interpretation of this of this. Again, you are entitled to to your own opinion. Uh, but that that is how we interpret and apply it. And speaking of best practices, we'll talk about best practices. All right, so I mean, everyone I'm sure remembers Prop 209. We're still dealing with this. Uh, we've been told that there's three cases, I think, that are up on appeal, uh, maybe at different courts or different levels, um, but we have not yet heard a, a, a solution. So for now, we're going with our, uh, our, our the way we've interpreted the Prop 209, and if we get a different opinion from the Court of Appeals, uh, we will immediately let you know. Um, but the 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 question with Prop 209, as everyone might remember, was when when does the lower rate of garnishment kick in? So there were a lot of the creditors that were asking that they that, that they were saying that that rate went in at the date of the contract. And so when they asked for the garnishment, they were letting you know this was based on a debt that was incurred in the year 2021. So the garnishment should be at the 25%. Um, we have interpreted that the date that uh, that rules the garnishment should be the date of the writ. The date when they file the application for the writ of garnishment is the date that um, rules what the percentage rate is. So any any garnishment that was requested after December 5th of 22 should be at the 10% rate, uh, not at the uh, not at the 25. The, the the same goes for the medical interest, although I think that the medical interest is a little clearer because those are contracts that were incurred after December 5th. Uh, the the rate can only be at the three percent. Anything before that was the higher rate that they had. Um, and then with all that other language, as to the weekly constant of the maturity treasure yield, and um, and then we 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 just hope you can find it where we think you can find it. Uh, just just make sure you know we do have a best practice on the Prop 209. I will just suggest that everyone, when you do sign these. Um, that you go back and look at the language that you're signing because there's still some creditors. Some creditors have given up on it and are just doing the 10%, but there are still some creditors in there that you'll find in the language of the writ that they are asking for the 25%. There's a couple that in the language of the judgment are writing in there that this was based on a debt that was prior to December 5th, which is fine. That's true. So I don't have a problem signing the judgment with that language, but just be aware that when that writ comes, you know that they're putting that language in because they are, uh, because they're going to be asking for the 25%. So just read it because a lot of times we just tend to automatically sign writs, uh, but you just really need to be careful. And I thought we had the attachment. The courts should be attaching. My court attaches them to every uh, every writ and every order of continuing lien, we attach the cover sheet with the information that goes to the garnishee because we don't know what the 
creditor is telling them, so we give them the information saying, this is what we believe. If you have any issues, consult an attorney. And, and yes, it is the, the date of the application, not the date of the writ of garnishment itself. And the, uh, the attachment is in the materials. Okay. Um, and then we have the best practice. You can go ahead and read that one. Um, as to the interest rates, um, it, well, it's currently 9.5. Um, the judgment should have interest. It is the, the there's been some issues with some pro per plaintiffs that don't include the interest rate in the forms of judgment. Um, I personally believe that the judge should include it unless they cross it out or they put zero or they say they're waiving it, um, that you as a judge have the obligation to add the interest rate. Um, we're saying that you leave the stipulated. Uh, they stipulated it's a stipulated judgment. You shouldn't be changing stipulations. Uh, we already talked about the 3% for the medical debt. Um, and someone can explain the one-year average on the maturity treasury yield. I just... Well, and, and just to clarify, <laughs> just to clarify the judgment, if you're going to award interest, it must be a number. It cannot say at the highest rate allowed by law. It You have to put that number in there. Right. And it has to have the number that, that's set because that number stays with that judgment forever. So if you have a judgment that today is 9.5 and the interest rates tomorrow go down to 8%, that judgment was already signed with a 9.5. And, and that he keeps that 9.5. Um, we do have, um, you, you know, the, the, the statute right now says that interest rates go into effect when they're published. And Charles spends every Friday of the week that the interest rates goes in effect, uh, refreshing the page to see if it's been published. Um, and so we are now going to run a legislation saying that the interest rate should go into effect on the Monday after publication. So we don't have to worry about having one interest rate in the morning and a different interest rate in the afternoon. Um, you know, again, who knows what the legislature will do. It's a non-controversial bill and we're hoping it will pass. Um, and then State versus Doe, we also have a best practice for this. This was a court of appeals case. Uh, in this case in particular was a felony case where the person, um, I think it was a felony, but that they had to install the ignition interlock device and uh, they did not have a vehicle. So at the end of the compliance period, they came to the judge and said, I haven't been driving all this time. Um, and so you should consider that I've complied with the one year of the. Uh, interlock, and the Court of Appeals agreed. Um, the person in this case didn't have a car and uh, insisted that they weren't driving. So we do have a best practice on this. Um, the, there was some concern at first. I haven't really seen it, and I don't know what's happening in other courts, that the, the attorneys are asking ahead of time, look, my client doesn't have a car. Please waive the requirement for the interlock. Mostly for us, that that's affected by the the any of the two extreme DUIs that require one year of interlock for to get the reduction in the jail time. So what the best practice make clear is that you don't decide that at the time of sentencing. 
that if they, after the year has gone by, that if they come and say you know, that they've complied with the rest of their of their sentence, that then they want that time um, to be counted because they weren't driving that year. Obviously, it's always difficult to prove a negative, and you have to decide how you're going to determine that they weren't driving. At a minimum, we would suggest that you get an MVR to show that they haven't had at least any driving violations in the time. Um, and uh, and then would allow that 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 period be complied. I again, I don't know how often we've been seeing this. I've gotten very, very few requests on this. Um, and mostly folks that have been waiting for years, you know, trying to when they've been saving up, trying to get their car so they can install the interlock so they can finally get the jail time. Um, and those would be cases that you might consider for uh, if they haven't been driving to remove the, the requirement. Um, there's a new best practice as to changes of plea um, that um, just to make sure that if that you don't change a plea, if you're going, you can either reject a plea or you can accept a plea. You cannot, um, you cannot just change it. You can't say, oh, this is too much or this is wrong. If it's going to be amended, you need to get both parties in to amend it. But if not, you just need to reject it if you don't want to accept it. And and, back, back to State versus Stowe, we do have a question from Judge Reagan. How do we notify MVD if the interlock is waived? We don't waive the interlock. What we do is we suspend the remainder of the jail time. And that's what the best practice discusses is right. that uh, as per MVD, MVD is still going to require that they get that interlock. So they're not going to be able to reinstate their driver's license most likely until or unless they get um, an interlock installed on a vehicle. So we're only concerned with suspending the remainder of the jail time. Right. And closing the case out, because a lot of times a lot of these cases just stay open for that reason. And that way we can close the case out. Um, and uh, just a reminder that you have to read uh, Rule 17.2. There is, as I understand, a new rule change that uh, that they're kind of concerned about what things should be told to a defendant, um, what information they should be told about additional consequences to a plea agreement. Uh, that's kind of, I think, still in discussion. Um, I think it's going to affect, or maybe it's already passed, I'm not sure, but I think that's going to affect felonies more than us because it has to do with losing voting rights and and possession of weapons. Uh, but uh, Rule 17.2 does require that you read the immigration advisement uh, and not just say, you know, not read it or not waive it. And then be sure that the, the, the State versus Haggerty says that it needs to be individually uh, addressed to each of the defendants. And I know that a lot of us do this through um, group advisements, just be sure that if you're doing a group advisement, the person was actually there, that they actually heard it, that they acknowledged that they heard it and they understood it. Don't just say, I read this at, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning and then someone who walked in at 10 o'clock say that it was part of the advisement and you don't acknowledge it again. So just be aware of that. 
Um, then the latest, this is our latest um, um, best practice that has to do with the, the and then this is just reminding everyone what the rules actually say and what the statute actually says. Um, that all injunctions against harassment, unless there is a threat of irreparable damage or harm, that they should all be set to pre-issuance hearings. Um, it does say that the the that they have to be set with reasonable notice to the defendant. So the the language is just reasonable notice, and I guess it's kind of up to your decision. What is reasonable notice? Uh, the best practice is obviously to have the constables. Um, uh, we the best practice does say that the court needs to provide that notice. Um, and so the, the easiest way is to get the, the constable to do it. But I, um, I, I mean, I would suggest that you're going to do any kind of other reasonable notice. You want to do a certified letter with return receipt or something just to be sure that the defendant has notice of the hearing. Um, we, we do have a question as to whether an attorney can waive the reading of the immigration advisory. No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. Rule 17.2 says that, that the court, the judge shall do it, not the attorney. So there is no waiving of what is in Rule 17.2. Um, and that is all. Right. We do have some et cetera's. All right. So this issue came up at the judicial conference uh, regarding victims' rights and uh, Again, you need to look at what the statutes in the rules say. If you, we issue a warrant on someone, on a defendant who isn't paying their restitution. And so they're arrested on the warrant and they're brought into court. And now you want to address that. Why haven't you been paying your restitution with the defendant who's finally in front of you? Uh, but guess what? ARS 13810. Uh, says at any hearing on the order to show cause, the victim uh, can participate. Uh, and Rule 39B7F provides for the right to notice of and to be heard in any criminal proceeding involving the modification of any term of probation that will substantially affect the victim's safety and the defendant's contact with the victim or restitution. Uh, so arguably, we shouldn't be talking to a defendant about restitution if the victim wasn't given notice and if the victim wasn't there. Uh, so we're we're considering doing a best practice on is this issue. So just be aware of this issue. But 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 <laughs> um, the if we believe, I mean, as I believe, and I think the state agrees that if the victims have not opted in. That may not be an issue, uh, but we want to make sure that we review those forms with the county attorney's office and we'll we'll include that as part of the best practice. Uh, but um, and, and that, is, that is correct. That would that would apply to an opted in victim. Right. Uh, so what what we need to make sure is that. And again, you know, this will be addressed that we have those forms in our files, that it's not just the county attorney who's holding on to the forms, but to be sure that the courts have noticed if the victims have opted in or out, because that's gonna make a big difference in how we deal with these. 
All right, and then this one is just basically just an FYI. Uh, it's a landlord-tenant case that may be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We, we don't know that they've accepted cert yet, so we don't know that that will, but that's just to bring that to your attention. Uh, next up, we want to talk about community restitution. Remember, now we discussed way back at the beginning of the hour that for civil traffic, for juveniles, you must offer community restitution. And remember, as of a couple of years ago, that was tied now to the current minimum wage. The minimum wage in Arizona will go up on January 1st to $14.35, and that's rounded up to 15 So as of January 1, the community restitution rate will be $15. And again, remember, for any civil traffic, the defendant must agree, and the court must identify the location of that community restitution. And now we'll talk about our DB prompt system. I'll let you do that, Judge. So the the um, DAISY prompt comes from the Supreme Court, uh, but our Maricopa County Superior Court um, is the one that provides us with the uh, system that we use, the prompt system that we use in in, in these. And so they have updated this um, to, to it fixes a lot of the issues that we have. One of the biggest fixes is the back arrow. Um, now, before anything is done, you have a chance to preview. You can make amendments before you have the final document. So you just go back and you can fix it you don't have the issues that we had before with the, the back arrow. So you'll have to use it before you get an idea. I think it's pretty intuitive when you use it. It just has more little check marks, much easier to use. Um, and uh, there, there's, it, there's actually a box now that we didn't have before for us to mark if the defendant is law enforcement, or uh, military, so that that is in there now. Um, it has the 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 prompts for the um, relationship between the parties are much clearer, much easier. Makes you it allows you now to change them when they put the wrong one, when they marked that they were intimate partners, when they were just roommates and that you couldn't go back and change that without amending. All of that now is very fixable with the new prompt system. I think in general, I know there's a few complaints about it, but I think in general, everybody's gonna like it. The only thing that I wanna point out that I did notice this week is the box that still allows the plaintiff to put in the other orders that they want. You must check that box it's the, I don't know if it automatically checks or not, but obviously the plaintiffs that want those additional orders are marking the box and adding that language in. Make sure that you uncheck it because they put in the most bizarre things in there. You know, make sure I get to keep the dog. Make sure that the, you know, what, whatever it is. I, I see Mike here. He was used to be a, a constable. I'm sure he knows what all. And then they come marked and you signed it. And it's like an order from the judicial officer. And the, as judicial officers, we never meant to put that in there. It was never our intention. 
But if we are not unchecking that box, that makes its way into the uh, into the order. So please be careful with that. Chad, uh, you might uh, also remind him that sometimes people try to use our system with uh, child issues instead of superior court. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've done a lot of trainings on that topic so that, that that we know. Be careful when you're marking exclusive use, that it's actually a home where the parties are living together. If you mark exclusive use on the wrong type, they're going to kick the, 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 the defendant out of their home, even though the plaintiff doesn't live there. So you have to be very careful with those things. Um, and because the, those those addresses are no longer being printed on the order, it makes it very hard to distinguish when you're saying, well, I really meant it to be this address and not that address. So be very cautious when you're using exclusive use. The one and, thing that... And, and you ahead. cannot put the, that the plaintiff's residence address on the order. That is state law. So a couple other things that under the new DB prompt system, you do have to check box six for Brady to apply, but you're only going to do that after a contested hearing. And number seven, which you're going to have at the ex parte, but you can never check, never check seven at an ex parte because it says the defendant received actual notice of his hearing and they didn't. So you're going to have to be really careful with, with which boxes you are checking and which boxes you aren't. Also, it's going to let you use Brady language on injunctions against harassment. Yeah, we're working on getting that removed, so, but just be careful of that, yes. Well, we're hoping we can get that removed, so. Well, we're working on it, that's all I can say. It's it's still there now, and keep in mind, it, there can never be Brady on an injunction against harassment because if it's an intimate relationship, then it must be an order of protection. So you're right, you cannot do, you can't prohibit them from having firearms, or even if it's not Brady, you can't prohibit it, or you can't make them turn in their firearms. Uh, work releases come back right now. It's only for backlog cases, um, so that. That doesn't affect us yet. They will let us know once they finish with the backlog, mostly of the city cases, uh, that when it becomes available for our courts, it will be it, it will be set up as a as a reservation system. So whoever wants to do work release has to reserve uh, a seat in a special unit that they're going to have for that, uh, or a bed, I guess, not a not a seat, um, and will. Uh, and, and, and so they'll have to adapt to whatever times they're able to do it once we're able to offer work release. Not yet, but it is coming soon. We think. All right. Any questions? And again, if you click on that link, most of the stuff, uh, I think pretty much everything we talked about, you can find in there. Again, you, you can always, I, I encourage you. Uh, to look for yourselves if you have any questions. Do we have any questions? The COJET certificate is the last page. Um, I do have a quick question. Yes. And again, uh, I know we, we've all read the 17.2 language over and over and over again um, in change of pleas. Uh, is there any chance that the justice courts could use 
a recording that is played during the change of plea proceeding. And, and that is what that the case that was cited specifically says is you cannot do is have a recording that that is what the Superior Court judge was doing and that that was deemed to be improper. So there will not be a recording. Well, again, the reason I'm asking the question is, uh, is I think they, the facts of that case where it was just kind of a general group advising recording. I'm saying you're in front of the defendant, you're going through the constitutional rights, you get to the 17.2, can you hit play and just play that recording and then turn to the defendant and say, did you just hear that? Um, and and the, the answer is no. The, the best okay. practice says they will hear it from your voice. There, right. there will not be a, you can do a group advisory as long as you then ask the defendant, did you hear me read the immigration information? But it's not going to be a recording. It's not going to be through the attorney. It is through you, the judge. Okay. Thank you. All right. Any other questions? All right. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Nice job.